Thank you, Danny. Well, uh, let me begin this week first by saying thank you uh, to Matt Randalls. Uh, so appreciative for him being able to preach last week. That allowed my family to escape. And uh, we spent a weekend in uh, Whistler, which is a very, very beautiful place. It's also a popular place on the MLK Junior weekend, not just for Canadians from Vancouver, but for a lot of people from the States. And uh, I know that may not seem like a big deal to you, but as an occupational hazard of being a pastor, uh, especially the pastor's family, weekends away are really not something that we ever do. Um, in fact, we, we, you just kind of get used to it. It's like the frog in the kettle thing. Uh, a few years ago, we were visiting some family, Corey's sister, and she, she asked us, she's like, oh, hey, you know, what, do you, you know, what weekends do you take away? And we were like, we don't really ever go anywhere for weekends um, because we don't really have them in some ways, or at least my weekend is partially in a week and on a weekend. So weekends that we do get to go away, like last weekend, are really, really, really fun for us. And so I'm very appreciative for both Matt and Phil uh, who have been stepping in to preach for me. They're excellent preachers, communicators. I'm very fortunate for them. And I'm also excited that they both agreed to kind of be in more of a regular rotation. And I am extremely excited for that for two reasons. The first one is it's good for a church body to hear from multiple vo voices in the pulpit. And before I arrived at Cascade, I was fortunate to be uh, on staff, a, a larger staff that had um, really two, like I shared preaching responsibilities with a colleague, and so we kind of tag teamed that. And then there was probably, I don't know, there was five or six people um, in our congregation that also would regularly kind of step in. And what I saw from that was that different groups of people, I mean, you just connect with a teaching style or a, a particular um, teacher, and that's not like factions. You think of in Scripture, or in Paul is talking about Apollos and some of the dynamics there. It doesn't have to be like that. I saw that hearing from multiple people, and not just men, but also recognizing that God has called and gifted women to preach and teach, and that that is a healthy and needed thing within a congregation. Uh, I'm excited that both of these two are going to step in. Also, another reason is that um, in the, I don't know uh, what the time frame is on this, but we're kind of fighting against our own culture in some ways, the, just the air that we breathe uh, every day. But it's just the professionalization of everything and the, and the specialist, the right. We live in the era of the specialist, you know, whether that's a, um, you know, in our corporate jobs or, or wherever that might be. And the church isn't immune from that. And so we have paid professional clergy to do stuff like preaching or to do other things. And that's not really, um, I mean, when you look at church history, and the early church in particular, uh, and scripture, that's not really a true reflection of the body of Christ. God has, we call it the priesthood of all believers, that God has equipped, or equipped, equipped, I just invented that word, that, that God has equipped each and every single one of us with gifts and talents and abilities that we're meant to use and have opportunities to use, whether that's up front here in teaching or whether that's 
uh, in our nursery or whether that's helping to make coffee or whether that's leading a small group or a Bible study or serving at rest stop or leading rest stop or anything like that. Like, God, we have a tremendous talent pool in our church body. And so we, my, part of my job is making, uh, making space for people to utilize those gifts. So the church, um, the church, in my definition of it, this has been something that we've kind of um, uh, talked more about in years past, but, but the church, in my definition of it, is we are God's people who he's forming to be more generous, joyful, and just. And that's not an all-inclusive theological definition. In fact, I'm sure it would be easy to find uh, much better definitions. But we as, a, as a, you know, a body of Christ have kind of played around with that idea for the last few years. That we're a group of God's people who he's forming and shaping to be more generous, joyful, and just. Uh, I've been reading a book from Eugene Peterson, who is the person who translated the message version of the Bible. And uh, he has a really great definition of what the church is, and I appreciated what he said. And he wrote about this in his book called The Pastor. And while he was serving a congregation, I think, man, he was a pastor for like 30 years or longer and then was a, a seminary professor. He said he had this paradigm shift from, um, he kind of understood the church, you know, we, we have the, you know, the big C church. Have you guys ever heard this? Or is this just what we learn in seminary, right? You have the big C church. That's like the universal church. Or in the Apostles' Creed, we say the Catholic church, which that technically means universal. Uh, and then underneath that, we have, you know, the little C churches. These are local congregations. They're all part of that. And, and so you think about what the church is and it's really easy to think about the church as this thing that's happening or this is what we're doing in the absence of Jesus. We're just kind of waiting around for him to come back. And even Eugene Peterson, I appreciate it, he said he had to have this paradigm shift from understanding the church as what we do to continue the work of Jesus in his absence to understanding the church as the creation and continuing work of the Holy Spirit. The church is the creation and continuing work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that strikes you as a significant shift, uh, but it, it does for me. It's easy to just get caught up in, in like, oh, well, first, you know, it, it's about me and my relationship with God. And as long as we got that, we're good. Oh, and then there's church, which I just is kind of in the absence of Jesus. That's where we, you know, meet to sing some songs every week. There's more to it, much, much more to it than just that. Um, another thing that Eugene pointed out, uh, because we're going to talk about church this morning, and I had a box of Kleenex somewhere. You're just going to have to do, deal with this. All right. <laughs> like, what is church? And uh, this is always a good Sunday to talk about this as we talk about budgets. So I just, I just, it's like taking your medicine all at once. Um, oh, thank you for uh, seeing my wonderful partner and spouse, Corey. Thank you. You like that? I played, I played football in high school, and my nickname was Stonehands. So, 
I wish I was making that up. <laughs> as long as I don't have to think about catching anything for more than a couple seconds, if I just react, it's good. Okay, so uh, Eugene Peterson, he was talking about like, what is the church? And there's, there's been like prevailing images over the years. And one of them from a long time ago was like the church, the church was like a broken down building that needed repair. You know, because you're, you look at the church and groups of churches, you're like, yeah, we're pretty flawed, right? Why did Jesus leave us in charge? Because that was a bad idea. You needed to go back to the drawing board on that one, Jesus. Uh, but he did very purposely uh, leave and uh, charged us with um, growing the kingdom. And so why did he do this? And so over the years, there's all these images of what the church is, and, and one of them used to be like the church was this broken down building, which, which in our context right now, you know, we put a new roof on last summer, and we've been replacing furnaces, and there's all sorts of stuff that are, you know, kind of reaching their service life, and so we're going to be uh, repairing, doing a lot of repairs over the next few years. Uh, but beginning kind of in the 1980s, there was this shift towards seeing church more like a business. And uh, it was more like an ecclesiastical business that had a mission to market spirituality. And, you know, maybe that's harsh and that's not every church in the world, but there's definitely like when you go to conferences for pastors, you read books or things like that, there's kind of this element to it. And uh, it's very, very, very easy for pastors like me to kind of get caught up in that mindset. You know, this is a business opportunity for spiritually minded people. And so how can we maximize our, or what's our competitive advantage? Uh, and it kind of heads down all of these different paths that aren't good in the long run. And so each year we, uh, we have a budget vote, which is very important for organizations like ours. But it's also a great time to talk about where we are as a church and where we're headed. So a few weeks ago, Phil pointed out, exactly one year ago, I introduced a new kind of tool called the Learning Circle. And uh, this, the whole idea here with the Learning Circle is to just give a tangible, uh, an anchor for us to conceptualize what it is to hear God's voice, and then what are we going to do with that. And the reason why this is important to learn is because the Holy Spirit is still active and present, speaking to us. Does God speak to us? Yes, he does. Is it in an audible voice? Maybe you just don't tell anybody when you hear that voice, right? So uh, how does God speak to us? I had a friend who used to describe it as thought arrows, you know, you're just kind of minding your own business, doing whatever, and then there's this, this arrow that comes through your mind. You're like, is that God? Uh, my wife, Corey, her pastor growing up, he used to describe the discernment needed. Like, is, is this God's voice? He, he talked about it like, when you wake up early in the morning and you have this idea that's just there, you know, is that the Holy Spirit or was it just the pizza that you ate last night? You know, like, how do you sort through that? And so the, the learning circle is, is kind of a way, and we talk about kairos, like this is 
heaven breaking in, these moments where, where even God stories that we, we, we work on with our confirmation students. Like there are these things that happen. Sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative. Uh, but we, when they happen, you're like, I think I'm supposed to learn something from that, or I think that was God. Uh, and often they have this kind of lasting um, residual effect. And so, you know, last year I introduced that. We're, we're observing what happened. Why did that happen? Was God? We're talking with others. I think God is speaking to me this way. And the most important starting point is just um, becoming aware that that is going on in your life pretty much all the time. And that as a follower of Christ, we need to learn how to do that. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I introduced a new tool that is called the Jesus Shaped Journey. And this one has been the single most helpful tool, in my opinion, for kind of describing what's going on in our own, like, as we become more like Jesus, here's the journey. It's the Jesus Shaped Journey. And uh, this is something that we're going to unpack a little bit uh, over the next couple weeks. In fact, uh, next week, Phil is going to be taking on a piece of this. And why we're making such an effort, spending so much time on this, is because we want to create kind of, I guess it's a new pool of language that we're going to be using amongst one another. And, you know, language creates culture. And in our congregation, in our church, we want to create, I'm calling it this, a discipleship culture. And uh, that's, you know, wow, uh, aren't we already doing that? Yeah, maybe. Um, but the shift, a discipleship call, for, the shift that is very much on my mind is how we do it, how we create disciples. And for many, 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 many years in churches like ours, we've had a very education-minded model. And so we're going to turn the Titanic or start turning the Titanic towards what I would call a training model. And the difference is huge. Um, Over the pandemic, um, there was lots of things that became apparent. And one of them for me is that our, our political parties and ideology and leanings, uh, they are much, much, much better at discipling people than we are, than I am, than us as a church. And that really bothers me, bothered me. And uh, that, you know, as I look, look at that, the two main things in kind of our arsenal are, hey, you're attending church, a church service on a Sunday morning, and you, you join a small group. And there is no way that um, that could ever compete with the amount of time, energy, and information that we consume from other sources during the week. I mean, I do it too, right? So how, how do we kind of, I mean, we've got the Holy Spirit on our side, so we don't need as much time. Uh, but we just kind of need to make a shift. And so that kind of started me in a, a, a search for different ideas or what we might do next. Because in the dividedness, you know, of the pandemic, what I saw was the church was right in the middle. And man, we were, our own congregation was split in many ways. We're not the only ones. 
And so what do we, what do we, we've got this huge divide among us. What do we do? Do we build the bridge and try and make peace? Do we just kind of restart and do the same thing on the other side? Or as my friend Sean says, do we descend into the deep? That's what we're going to do. So training, like discipleship, is experiential. It means you come alongside someone who shows you how to do it. You think of coaching or mentoring. Um, over the years, I've had kind of a standoffish sense towards mentoring, and I don't, maybe it was because I was young and, and uh, a little too prideful. I wanted to figure it out on my own. I'm sure that was some of it. But I, I also had, uh, at that time, you know, I'm thinking like when I was, uh, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, and there at that moment in the church that I attended and worked at, there were older men in their 50s who would often say, oh, I would really love to mentor someone. And I very much stiff-armed those people and avoided them. And I think it's because what they meant by mentoring was not something I was interested in. And what it meant was like, Let's sit down and have coffee, and I will share with you all my years of worldly wisdom, you know, and just, you can chew on that. And I, I wasn't really interested in more information. Um, but that's not mentoring, at least how I would understand it. Mentoring's like this. Um, there was an, a retired gentleman at the church that I used to serve, and his name was Norm. And I love Norm. We all love Norm. And I want to say we, it's the church staff. Because here's what Norm, he, Norm was retired. He was a retired city worker. And so he probably had never worked an honest day in his life. And, and he's laughing because he would probably say that. Um, so he was a retired city worker. And he would uh, go fishing every morning, every morning. And then he would show up at the church office and he would pester us. And by pesteress, I mean he would just, um, you know, water cooler talk us to death. And we loved him. And he would also do tons and tons and tons of just odd jobs around the church that no one had time or energy to do. He would take it on. And Norm was extremely uh, endearing and sarcastic person. And uh, once he just goes, hey, you want to go fishing? And I, I knew that I should say yes, and so I did. And so Norm, Norm took me to some river, and we stood in it for a few hours, and he taught me how to catch salmon. Norm, this is amazing. Like, I, I can catch a whole dinner just by standing out here. Uh, Norm was really, really good at catching salmon. I noticed that when I went on my own, I, I never caught as many salmon as I did when I went with Norm. But he provided enough information. Uh, he showed me how to do stuff. We did it together enough that I could go and do it on my own and, and then talk to him later about what I should have done differently. That is mentoring. It's experiential. Somebody comes alongside you and, you know, shows you how they do it. It's a conversation. You, you go and you do it on your own. You make some mistakes. You have some successes. You come back. You talk about it. I mean, corporate coaching, much of the same kind of mindset so much better than sitting in a lecture like you are right now, trying to learn stuff with application points that you do later. And so as a church, we want to make this slow tack 
towards creating a training environment. And what is discipleship? It's becoming like Jesus, yes, but really it's helping others to become like Jesus. And all of us are able to contribute to that. So in Matthew 28, Jesus tells he's leaving. He says, go and make disciples of all people. And so we will benefit more and more and more from people who can show us in addition to people who just talk about it. Now, in our society, how is that ever going to happen? I don't know, but it's worth trying to figure that out. So a year ago, someone showed me this really helpful tool that helps explain the process of discipleship, the process of my own transformation in becoming like Jesus. And I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. I'm going to do it again this morning in a much quicker time frame. And I like it because it's helped shed light on why I have certain reoccurring thoughts that are mostly unconstructive. It's helped shed light on uh, stupid sins that continually trip me up. It's helped uh, explain why I sometimes feel stuck in my life and my faith. And more important than that, it's given me a how. How can I find freedom and healing in Christ? And so that's the Jesus-shaped journey here. And we see the shape of Jesus' journey when we look at Luke 3 and 4. And um, Luke 3 and 4, we find kind of uh, several landmarks, three landmarks. We actually see a couple characters that are important, uh, not just to Jesus' story, but they're kind of present in ours as well. And in Luke 3, verse 21, Jesus is at his baptism. And when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven came saying, You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And so we're going to call this Jesus' call to ministry. Okay? And you'll notice uh, you've got the Holy Spirit is present, you have the voice of the Father, extremely important telling Jesus who he is. I mean, he's claiming Jesus. You are mine. I love you. You make me pleased. That's a voice uh, that all of us hear. We have a heavenly father who claims us, who loves us, who is pleased with us. Can you receive that? Can you hear that? Then, immediately, Jesus falls off a cliff, pretty much. And uh, full of the Holy Spirit, he's led into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, <clears throat> he encounters, uh, actually, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is Luke 4, verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And so if this was kind of our first landmark, we'll call this, the second one, we'll call this challenge. <clears throat> and down here, 
Meet the Devil. I know I'm standing in front of it for you folks over here. And Satan tempts him specifically in, in kind of three areas. In his uh, appetites, you know, hey, turn these stones into bread. Uh, in his ambition, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just worship me. And also he tempted Jesus in his need for approval. Hey, throw yourself on the top of the temple. Show everybody that you're the son of God. Twice, he uses the phrasing, if you are the son of God, then. So he's specifically challenging identity. Who are you and whose are you? Well, if you're God's son, then prove it. And so we have these three areas Our appetites, our ambitions, our need for approval. And how does Jesus respond to this? He continually says, hey, I listen to my Father's voice and not yours. Well, my Father says, God's Word says this. This is how God views me. That's who I'm going to listen to. Um, you might call an, an adversary in this kind of situation. The devil would be one. <clears throat> Another adversary that we could, it's the world that's created. You know, the world system. You know, when I experience temptation in any one of these areas, uh, a lot of times it's just the circumstances that, you know, we live in a fallen world. Uh, a third one, we could... Um, Christians use this word a lot, flesh. It comes from a Greek word, sarx. It's a great word. <clears throat> and it means all sorts of stuff. Uh, we'll just say flesh is, is like our ego, which is also broken and in need of redemption. And these three things often conspire against us. Uh, they thwart our journey in becoming more like Christ. And so Jesus continually goes back to his, I'm going to listen to my father and not you. And eventually he comes out of the wilderness, full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit's power. He's faced all these adversities, and he kind of signals the completion of his journey by reciting Isaiah 61. And so in Luke uh, 4.18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so this would be the last. He's kind of completed his journey. That's where this is, completion. And, and here we kind of find three, like, how, how did he do that? Well, he, You'll notice he had the Holy Spirit with him. He also had his father as a, a guide. Uh, and the last thing that you like is really, really helpful, and I'm going to talk about this more in a minute, is once Jesus comes out of the wilderness, once he's faced these temptation, he kind of reorganizes his own family. And when we talk about discipleship and becoming more like Jesus, it's not just an individual thing. 
Uh, often God leads people into our life at very critical moments. They're like guides. And if you haven't noticed that, play, pay closer attention. At every single critical moment in my life where um, I was about to get crushed by one of these things, there was someone that God brought along to help me. Sometimes I miss that person. In hindsight, I'm like, oh, that's what that was about. That's the Holy Spirit leading and using us in one another's life. So critically important. And you know, the challenge in my story, a couple weeks ago, I told you, you know, my drug of choice usually is the need for approval. Um, but that's not the only thing that trips me up. Uh, they, they all do. Uh, here's how this one works. Appetites. And the weird thing is, uh, is that they're, they definitely are all connected. And so appetites, um, especially in times of anxiety and stress, uh, they work on me. And in times of anxiety and stress, if I, don't, if I don't just slow down for a moment and call those things out, well, then I find myself looking for escapist behavior. And it happens through appetites. You know, you eat too much. You drink too much. You play video games too much. You shop too much. You do all sorts of stuff too much. It's these desires that are just there, and when they, they just kind of can run your life if you let them. And when I experience that or when I become aware of it, it's really, really important for me to recognize why. why. And it's, uh, sometimes it's when it feels out of control. That's why I'm feeling anxiety that has to do with ambition uh, or stress. Sometimes I'm worried that, man, I'm going to give this message on Sunday morning and it's going to really, really, really bomb there's yeah, like, Dan, put away the flip chart or the uh, dry erase board. I don't ever want to see that again. Like, oh, man, give me some more. I mean, it, yes, you all understand that. And if we don't learn how to identify these things and go back to our, listen to our Father's voice, um, they get the best of us. We get stuck. Next week, Phil is going to, um, kind of spend some more time on just this whole challenge piece and it's going to be good to hear from him because he's much wiser than me. Uh, I, I want to spend just a, a few minutes talking about call and also about family and we'll wrap things up. Um, people in my line of work often talk about call and it, you know, calling that's like you feel this strong urge towards a, a career or something that you're going to do. We, we would say someone like that has a calling. And it's not just pastors who articulate that. I mean, I've heard doctors and nurses, um, teachers, police officers. I've heard people serving in the military articulate what I would say is like a call. Like they're responding to some, there's deep voice inside that's beckoning them towards doing something. And um, occasionally, God impresses something very specific upon us. But I, I would say in general, you know, all of us, God asks all of us to serve him always, everywhere, with our whole lives. 
It's not just for missionaries, pastors, and people serving in ministry. So if uh, you're a follower of Jesus who happens to be a UPS driver, God bless you. You could say, I'm a minister of Jesus uh, who happens to be a mom not working outside of the home. God bless you. Uh, we could say, I'm a Christian who happens to do some coding for Amazon at the moment. God bless you. You are made in the image of God first. You're a follower of Jesus, and then everything else falls in after that. Um, but sp occasionally, God impresses upon us to do something very specific. Uh, but even then, if we'd say, oh, I have this calling, there's something that's even before that. Uh, occupational hazard, I know I, I've used that word several times this morning for pastors, but I think it applies. You know, sometimes if you have a calling, it kind of takes over your identity. Like one of my goals, maybe this is good or bad, I don't really ever want to become Pastor Dan because I've seen colleagues who've made that transition. And I think that's probably a, da a danger with, with something you do every single day, day in, day out, you're passionate about or whatever, like you kind of take on this persona. That's not your identity. There's something here that happens first. God calls us. For followers of Jesus, um, and what is this? I, th I think it's Mark 3, 13. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside. He called to him those he wanted, and they came. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. You'll notice that phrase, Jesus called to them those he wanted. The Gospel of John also says, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And so that happened 2,000 years ago, I know. But Jesus still calls people to himself. Every single one of us. How did you respond? How will you respond? How are you responding? Do you hear his voice, his call? What, do you, what would it look like to take one step closer to Jesus? Let me talk about family. Immediately following uh, the calling of Jesus' disciples, uh, it, it says that they were eating in somebody's house. I don't know if it was Peter's house. It might have been some, I'm not even sure it was named. But there were so many people in the house that they could barely eat. That's what it says. And his, uh, his mother and brothers, specifically, came to get him because they're like, this is, this is nuts. This is crazy, Jesus. We're taking you home. And this is where Jesus says, you know, who are my mother and brothers? He looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother, my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so we have this really odd habit within the walls of the church of calling people brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that mean? We're family. And over my years in ministry as a pastor, I think I've been probably, well, I don't know. It, it just feels like we're really good at creating office culture in church. And I'm not sure we create family culture in our church. We want to head towards family. It's 
specifically a family who has a mission, a family on a mission. And I know that that's shaky ground. Uh, some families are really messed up and broken. And I don't know how you feel about that word. You might not like that word at all. But when we're talking about redemption and restoration and the new life that we find in Christ when we put our faith in him, he can even redeem this, our family. And so what does it mean to be family with one another? I mean, sometimes your family, well, all of our families chose us, right? We didn't have a choice. But you still have to decide to, if you want this or not. And so the long, slow shift, and we're fighting against culture, our own culture, because, you know, we've got busy lives. We have things outside of Sunday mornings and outside of other gatherings, whatever, that are going on all the time. And sometimes all, we're only available just to show up and, and worship the Lord, and then we move on. If that's where you're at, I'm actually really glad you're here. Uh, but there's something you're missing out on, and it's in this area. And together, God has called us. I mean, we're called the body of Christ. That's a pretty interconnected, integrated word. And none of us have time to do that. But we're missing out on the blessing and the power uh, and the plan that God has for the church in his kingdom. And so as you digest on this, the rest of the, I don't know what, you're, what grabbed your attention. If it's one of the like, hey, where are, are you at one of these landmarks? You're hearing God's call or maybe you feel like you're kind of stuck and you got some challenges right now. Which ones are they? Or maybe you're kind of feeling like, no, I just came through it. Like God just did something in me. And you, and you feel his power and presence. I don't know. Or maybe it's one of these words, the, the world or your own ego, the devil. Or maybe it's family that's drawing your attention. Uh, my encouragement is to reflect on that and pray. Like, Lord, is this one of those Kairos moments where uh, I'm hearing from you? What do I do next? What do I do next? Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you, and uh, first of all, we are so grateful that you called us, that you are after us, that you want us. Help me, help us to respond to that, Lord, to block out all the other noise and distractions that might be present that might be very real. Help us to pay attention, Lord, to you and what you're doing in our life. And as it relates to our own church body, we're a family. What does that mean, Lord? Uh, to me, that means that's complicated. I know for others of us, that might mean it hurts. But we hold those things before you, Lord. We name them and we offer them up to you. We know that you not just love us, but you're in control. You're sovereign over us. Help us to rest in that. We pray this in your powerful name.